All right. No, I. People aren't usually this talkative. They don't see you. Huh? They don't. <laughs> hey, come on in. How's everybody doing today? Can you believe? You know, I used when I was when I was 12 or 13, I used to work in a boiler house, chicken house. Uh, that's where the chickens roam free inside the house. You know, they grew up and then you sell them. And uh, when they were small, when the chickens are small, if you you're walking through there amongst them, they get really loud. You know, because they kind of panic and it's like, "What's he doing? What's he doing? What's he doing?" They get really loud. And you have to stop every once in a while, and if you just whistle, like a long tone like that, they just quieten down. They get kind of quiet. It's the strangest thing. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what that. Probably they were scared legitimately because my job was to walk through there, find the sick ones, and knock them in the head. And, and people wonder, what's wrong? Why? I'm like, I'm step on them. It was great job. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not using that as a metaphor for you all talking this morning. At least, at least as far as you know, I'm not using. Uh, can you believe we've only got a couple of weeks left? This week and then next week will be it. I know you all are sad to see it end. What's uh, the exam? Well, there's no exam, but there'll be a survey and. Uh, in an election, if, if you'd like to see this class continue from the pulpit, I suggest you talk to the elders about. Let's. I could split time with Josh, and I mean, just give me one of these, man. I could like. If you'll turn your attention to the last supper. Uh, no, this has been fun for me, uh, be, because uh, uh, it, it's helped me remember and re-engage and re-articulate some things that I know intuitively but seldom get to talk about uh, and certainly seldom get to have to research further. I've learned a lot uh, as a Enneagram 5. I, you know, I, uh, anytime I'm in charge of being in front of people, then I usually, um, you know, make sure that Enneagram just doesn't, that's why I don't have notes. Uh, an Enneagram 5, uh, isn't comfortable with just knowing a little bit about it and following notes. You, Enneagram fives typically have to master it so that then they can just be at ease. You know, take. Uh, I'm not suggesting that I've certainly been a master of uh, all the things we've talked about, but uh, because of the way I learned, it's been really helpful for me. Uh, and it's also kind of reinvigorated and re-excited me uh, about the... Uh, about the idea of, of doing further work. Uh, the last few times I've been to Europe, it's been for music only, and, and I hadn't thought about metal detecting and haven't thought about that. Uh, you know, my museum buddies and any of that. Uh, but, but during, you know, this 13 weeks, uh, I've kind of re-engaged with some of those people, and um, I don't know, it's a, maybe, maybe I'll start doing a little bit more of that as well. 
I would love to do that. I would love to do that. Uh, and I have a friend who does that full time. He's a full time uh, treasure hunter uh, and uh, all over the world. And he's constantly trying to, he's always tried to get me to go in business with him. But I'm not, uh, I'm good at metal detecting. I'm not good with people. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I had in my club. I, what's great, and if any of you are interested in pursuing that, for sure, I, uh, the club that I belong to uh, in Essex County, um, uh, in England, uh, they they organize uh, hunts. Uh, like seven or eight weeks during the fall, seven or eight weeks during the spring, and it's just, uh, it's fantastic. It, it's not for the faint of heart, of course, because the, the ideal times to metal detect in England are, in terms of the crop rotation, is the absolute worst weather time, you know, and uh, if, you've, if you know anything about uh, weather on the island, it's uh, unpredictable and, and uh, it can be a, a challenge. It's like a boot camp. I used to go six weeks in a, uh, a year. I'd go three weeks at a time, hunting 14 hours a day. Sometimes I'd lose 12, 13, 13 pounds. I mean, it's just a really uh, grueling thing. But it, it sign uh, me up. Sign me up. You're ready to go? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and because because I've had this huge find early on, and and I would go back every week on the queen's dime you know i just kept the the money i got from the john the baptist in pounds and so i'd go back and it was free i was like this is great and then when i used all that money up i, I thought man this is expensive i don't <laughs> when you get used to not paying for something you know it's uh, but anyway it's been a it's been a fun um 13 weeks and um hope to maybe be, do it again at some point Let's have a prayer and we'll start. <clears throat> Father God, thank you for another beautiful day, uh, another day of life. And for that, Lord, we are grateful for the oxygen in our lungs, for, uh, for our eyes and for our heads, for our brains. Lord, for just the ability to wake up every day and take in how deep and wide um, and long your love for all of creation is God any opportunity we have to see that through a different lens and through different eyes and different ways Lord is a blessing worthy of gratefulness Lord we're, we're thankful for this body and for um, this institution Lord uh, for those who work here for those who labor here for those who volunteer uh, all who pass through these doors, Lord, we're grateful for each life that that represents. And um, Lord, we just uh, come to you this morning uh, with gratefulness. Lord, we pray that you be with uh, all those who are hurting, who are suffering, who have loss, who are mourning. Um, Lord, those around the world that are oppressed, that are in poverty. Uh, Lord, we pray for your justice, for your love, uh, for your compassion, and for your victory over all things um, that aren't love. God, we ask that when, when you can, make us instruments of the reflection of the love that you have for us and for all creation. And for all things, we are thankful. 
through the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. So, uh, two weeks left. I had to kind of make an executive decision about um, what what to do for these next two weeks. I'm still thinking about next week, but I thought about talking some about paintings in the medieval period now. Uh, and there's just so much. Hey, there's so much co- content and analysis and nuance about having to do uh, with painting. Uh, during the medieval period, and then especially as you get into the Renaissance, uh, and I just don't have that much experience with it. First of all, there's not it, uh, <laughs> versus the metal work and the reliquaries and illuminated manuscripts, the things we've talked about uh, during the Anglo-Saxon, the early medieval period. Uh, in terms of sheer volume of that stuff, it really heavily outweighs oil painting or the painting that was going on during the medieval period they don't call it the dark ages for nothing you know uh really the the best i mean not not that there isn't brilliant uh christian art going on you know in the flemish tradition and the dutch uh and even in in england and ireland at the time um there was but just in terms of the corpus being small versus some of the other things we talked about where faith kind of permeates the material remains uh there's just not a lot there until you get into the um, renaissance period and once you get there that's a whole that's a whole nother 13 weeks so and emily will be teaching that next semester so thank you emily for teaching (laughs) i'm just kidding or maybe i'm not uh so anyway instead of you know, kind of delving into that, I just thought, all right, there's there's some random uh, different uh, kind of material, uh, metalwork material remains uh, that we can go over, and especially some things that are small and seemingly seemingly insignificant, but that mean a lot to me personally because I dug a lot of it. Uh, so I thought we'd we'd cover some of those random things to tomorrow. I mean today, and then next week I kind of want to close out. Uh, talking about where can you see this stuff uh, like giving some recommendations of collections uh, that are you know w- within reach for us Cincinnati uh, you know Louisville uh, and Cleveland I mean there's some places where some uh, and talk kind of talk about and give an overview of some of those collections so that um, you can kind of take what you've picked up here and go experience it yourself. It's one thing to see it on the screen, to talk about it. Uh, it's neat that we've had some things to pass around, uh, but to see kind of the, there, there's some fantastic collections of uh, early Christian uh, and medieval Christian art, uh, material remains, <clears throat> that's very accessible. Uh, so I'll ta- I wanna talk about that next week and maybe give you, a, and give you a handout where you can kind of take that and go experience it yourself. So is that cool? Thank y'all for being here. So this morning I want to, uh, and I've got uh, several things, and I'm going to start pretty early passing them around. I don't want them to be distracting, but as we start to talk about these things, it, it again, is neat for you to hold it and, and, um, and talk about it. So this morning, kind of a hodgepodge, uh, I want to start out talking about vesica seals or um, 
seal matrixes, which is the other thing I want to do this morning is contrast what was going on in the church, uh, in the institution, the kind of art that was being made there and commissioned there versus the everyday art. The truth is faith permeated all of that uh, from uh, from, you know, bishops, croziers uh, to processional crosses uh, all the way down to the clothing fasteners and buttons on a peasant's tunic, you know, somebody who's working in the, in the field in the lowest class of uh, European society. Faith permeated all of that, and um, um, a lot of material remains we find. This is the whole reason I got into metal detecting in Europe, because my quest for ecclesiastical relics is so easily completed, because it's in everything. If you're not digging up a gold, you know, Edward III noble coin with, you know, Christian motifs. You can dig up literally a, a Tudor clothing fastener that has IHS on it. You know, that faith permeated the material, that the, the way people lived their lives, you know, from their shoelaces um, all the way up to their uh, the altarpieces in the churches. So uh, I like, you know, when we talk a little bit about that those contrasts this morning. So seal matrixes, uh, which are a pretty common find uh, from, you know, after the Norman invasion uh, or the Norman conquest, around 1100 we start seeing seal matrixes in uh, in England, all the way up through uh, the early 1500s. And basically, what this is is a merchant's seal, uh, meaning uh, this is. Uh, copper alloy and there's a carved uh, legend there and a motif and that seal uh, is used uh, to seal wax in a document or on a receipt or in a merchant uh, setting that seal was commissioned by a merchant uh, or sometimes a, you know uh, an aristocrat would, would commission a seal be made with the family crest or a legend that was specific to that family. Uh, and then uh, that uh, aristocrat would use that to, to seal and wax documents and um, things of that nature. Most of the ones we find are common merchant, you know, seal matrixes. I'll, I'll pass one around. They, they come in different form. This looks like a chess piece, but if you'll look, and this is, again, bronze, um, and then it's, uh, you know, the matrix is carved out in there. And then, of course, when you um, seal it into wax, you get an impression. Um, this is in Play-Doh, which we don't, <laughs> sometimes it damages them to, and these are all hand cut. I mean, this is not cast bronze. These are all individual. There are no two alike, mm -hmm. although a lot of times the uh, motifs are alike. Uh, or the motifs are reused, the legends and the, each piece is individually uh, cut with great skill. Uh, and these vary from uh, really crude, uh, sometimes they'll have a crude squirrel on it and it'll just say, you know, in, in, in abbreviated Latin, Lombardic Latin, it'll, it'll say seal of John, you know, and sometimes seal is misspelled or something. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it was kind of a, Anywhere from that to, uh, you know, seals made out of gold for Henry VIII that were this big and, and, you know, cut and made by the best jeweler in all of England, you know. Uh, but most of them have a legend like this, and again, in, in abbreviated 
uh, Latin, basically, hail son of God, remember me, or, or be mindful of me, or bless me. This is a really general uh, uh, legend that we find. Not, we also find these in the East. I, I didn't bring it this morning, or I have a picture of it, but you find these in the Byzantine Empire, and then later in the Eastern Church, and they're the, kind of the same motifs. I have one at home that has a cross in the middle, and the legend, of course, is in Greek, abbreviated Greek, but it, it says basically the same thing. Uh, Lord, please protect or bless or be mindful of Anna, you know, and um, so it's a, it, it's a interesting uh, <clears throat> piece of material remains that we find pretty commonly uh, from every class of, of society and they almost all exclusive every once in a while you'll find uh, we find them that are really crude like the legend is crude it'll have profanity on it or have some and it'll be like a jester's uh, seal or something like that it'll be specifically made for uh, you know, talking about flagellants or something like there's really crude medieval humor is really crude, especially in the uh, peasant class uh, and every once in a while. But the vast majority have a Christian uh, motif, uh, and they're quite quite serious. Later on, uh, kind of in the later Middle Ages, we find these with uh, kind of in the memento more uh, class. In other words, they're they're made. Uh, as a remembrance of somebody, a death. Uh, you'll see a, you know, a skull and a crossbones, and uh, it'll have someone's name, you know, or it'll say, you know, I will soon follow you in death. I mean, they're kind of, you know, any anybody you guys know about Memento Mori stuff, it gets kind of weird <laughs> toward the 17th century, because uh, it, uh, it's like, you better look out. I'm coming to join you in death and the skull and the crossbones. So like, oh, what a lovely memento, you know. <laughs> but it, they were they're very popular. Uh, this is a really cool seal. Emily just saw this. I just made an impression uh, while they were at my house recently. But this is a, a nice uh, circa 1200 uh, Vesca seal I found um, in Colchester. And that's not an actual wax. And it's hard, to, again, it's hard to see, but this basically is a seal of Roger, Roger the Shrubber, <laughs> right? From Monty Python, never mind. <laughs> but, you know, that has, the legend has nothing, no religious con connotation at all, but you have uh, a lamb and the tree of life in the middle of it. So this would have been a generically made uh, seal, uh, and the merchant or whoever Roger was had the legend cut in. In other words, the picture would have been done. He chose that, I want that, and put this around it. And so the maker would have uh, cut the legend um, in there. Contrast that to uh, this from about the same period. This is uh, the seal of, uh, there's the impression, William. By the grace of God, abbot of St. Martin, and then on the other side, Sanctus Martus. Uh, and this is from, this is whale ivory, or whale bone, um, really high quality. And you can see the zoomo, zoom, uh, zoomorphic, uh, the 
the bale is made is some kind of animal's head or something like that. And this is a much larger seal. This would have been uh, more like a papal seal or a, uh, the, all the popes had their own seals, of course. And anytime a, a bull, which was a, you know, a decree of the pope went out, it was signed, uh, it was sealed with a papal bulla, which was, a uh, you know, a, many times wax but then also lead like they would melt lead he would stamp you know the bulla into the lead and then that lead would be pinched over the seal of the document that document would be sent to a diocese or it'd be sent to a church we find those all the time which is pretty amazing because it uh i, I don't have a picture of one uh but of course lead turns white you know over over time and oxidizes but it's, it's so cool because most of the time it'll have the Pope's head, it'll have a legend on the other side, it'll have Christ or, or different things. And we know that when we find those, that came from a document, you know, that came from, uh, came from Rome. Uh, and that's a really cool find. They're really valuable. Yes, um, please, anyone just shout out questions as we go. You've talked a lot about the uh, imagery, Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, that's a, you know, there's a stylistic question there. Whatever is popular, really, whatever's popular in Cologne, you know, the British were following the French because the Fr France was the center of you know European artistic taste at the time. So some some of that was guided by whatever the popular taste was. Like when uh, cloisonne enameling got big and kind of the eleven you know eleven hundred through thirteen hundred in France, that was you know. Uh, enamel and gilt on copper plates, you know, so then all that made its way over to England eventually. But typically, uh, uh, the, the more precious the metal, the more precious the stone, uh, you know, the, the higher or more importance the person commissioning the art, all the way down to lead. So that's kind of the <coughs> we, our, our pewter when we'll talk about pilgrim badges in a second, but yes. If, if, if you have um, a seal that's made of ivory, you know, carved from ivory or gold or silk, gilt silver, uh, that, that came from wealth. A lot of times it came from institutional wealth. You know, uh, typically the bigger it was, you know, the more precious metal, the more precious the object that's being manipulated or turned into art. It does reflect, uh, in terms of the symbolism, you know, a lot of what we saw last week, we didn't. You, typically, you don't see, especially in before uh, before the enameling came in. You know, Anglo-Saxon, Celtic, all those reliquaries are made of gold. At the very least, gilt silver, which is the best gold we can do. You know, uh, because the the metal, you the preciousness that's being used reflects the preciousness of the object being honored. In other words, the this is. The most sacred relic we have, we're going to offer the most sacred, you know, expensive art to house that relic. And then, of course, the interesting thing is, and, and speaking to stylistic changes, that changes, you know, in the 13th century when, you know, Clausenet enameling comes in. So, you know, you, you have this box that holds a bone from St. Thomas Becket, you know, uh, and it's made out of gilt copper, you know. 
but the but the it's the this is the most stylistic labor intensive highly skilled piece of art that we can put together to honor this bone it's also something that can be mass produced unlike you know gold and silver work you know anyway so both stylistic question and yes typically the the more uh, yeah so I'm following up on that then are there some things that would not have been put in pewter that would have been put in gold or is it just reflect to what they can afford yeah what they can afford typically so it, it doesn't really have much to do with the message what metal is it well, and except it, yeah, except the, the intrinsic message of the person commissioning the art, okay, so it, yeah. their importance is reflected in the, met, the content of the metal and quality of the work as well. For instance, here are, these are uh, croziers uh, from 12th, uh, 12th, early 13th century, and again, uh, this this is unbelievable metalwork. Um, because you can see you have um, especially oh in both of them you have the uh, uh, the enameled this is enam this is copper but then it's gilt uh, some of the interior designs uh, designs could be gold um, this again would fit on the end of a, of a bishop's staff and this would be his uh, kind of staff or symbol of authority uh, within the mass those of you who are Catholic, who are Catholics? You can admit it. Huh? I can't believe we don't have a Catholic. Where, uh, where would you hold that? Uh, where would you hold the staff? Yeah, right. At the, at, you can see where the fitting uh, ends there and the staff begins. Usually they would hold it, uh, yeah, at the, at the juncture of the metalwork uh, and, the, and the staff. And the staff would be you know, quite tall to so that everyone can see it as it comes in. Uh, here's some detail of, that's just unreal, incredibly expensive uh, commission because you have that intricate enamel work in gold, you have the jewel, inset jewels, you have all of that um, repose uh, work, and then of course you have the, the uh, those cast or carved central figure figures, um, which, by the way, <laughs> uh, yeah, very possibly the uh, the John the Baptist I found was uh, could could have been a central figure in a crozier, um, although again, still has an attachment loop on the back, so there's a question of what it was attached to, but it is very similar what you see probably about the same size um, those are probably gilt uh, gilt copper and not gold but um, this this un, unreal uh, expense uh, this would have come from France uh, to England it wasn't uh, so it was imported or at least imported uh, in in, um, in some form there's a carved ivory crozier which is Fantastic. Uh, and again, I mean, a lot of this, it's hard to fathom this was carved from a piece of ivory in relief. Uh, so, sometimes you find some of the, the figures or are, are, uh, are implements are, are carved separately and attached. 
but a lot of times it's just carved straight out of a piece of ivory and the uh, the the skill there's a processional cross this is a the Kong cross or the cross of Kong it's called this is in Dublin uh, circa 1100 and it contains a relic of true cross uh, do you see this Alan when you were in Dublin no just walk down the street with it <laughs> and again this is all mostly gilt sil silver um, but again you can the a lot of that, those same designs we see in the book of Kells uh, and the early Celtic and Anglo-Saxon art it's just uh, the metal work uh, the workshops the skill we don't really see this anymore <laughs> yeah. uh, you know metal whoever did worked on this cross was probably an entire workshop were worked on it you know were trained generations after generations of gold work and metal work uh, and of course it's all done by hand you have to see the check those stones and the eyes uh, how those are the Vesca uh, navet shaped uh, and again this is silver um, over oak and then it's gilt uh, with real gold uh, basically melt down gold <coughs> coins uh, and then dilute it and then coating uh, coating the silver with real gold so you know when we talk about gold leaf today sometimes that's real gold but um, uh, it's just a fascinating process so uh, so then kind of making our way down from the institutional commissions, I mean, obviously uh, the, the, the wealth and the benefactors needed to commission a piece of art like the Con Cross or like those croziers or like some of the reliquaries we looked at last week uh, comes from a treasury, a monastery, an institutional. Sometimes you did have a single benefactor who would commission something, you know, as a, as a way of as a, an indulgence in other words this is going to get me through purgatory quicker if I can you know pay for a commission for the bishop's staff yeah slightly corrupt I know but uh, but then uh, this you talk start talking about individuals uh, commissioning uh, or, or having uh, pieces of jewelry made to reflect their faith these are called iconographic rings and they were really popular uh, in the uh, the 12th, 13th, 14th century uh, and they all kind of are the same uh, thing we found they are, my club has found uh, these rings before in both uh, formats these are two different rings of course uh, and the just uh, bright cut engraving of uh, this is a patron saint uh, typically sometimes you find Christ uh, uh, Pancrator uh, but a lot of times you find like a patron saint uh, and you know with different things uh, engraved and then here you have black enamel which is awesome uh, this is relief uh, cut and engraved uh, with the Christ suffering Christ and the uh, uh, Christ as king uh, probably Mary on one side um, not sure what the other not sure what the total content here, but that's you know that's in solid gold, 22 karat gold, high karat gold, uh, uh, incised and then enameled with black enamel, and it survived really well. I'm sure this was excavated. Um, 
And then the legend on the outside is, uh, my God is with me. The legend on the inside is, the Lord guides me and nothing will I lack. So a lot of protective motifs, a lot of protective. That's the whole idea of patron saints, you know, is, is, uh, is to offer protection. Um, great thing about this stuff is, you know, gold comes out of the ground, how it gold goes in. It doesn't tarnish. Sometimes you lose the enameling, you know, over time depending on the soil conditions, but it's crazy when you dig a gold artifact out of the ground. Doesn't matter if it was lost in the 18th century or 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago, uh, unless it's, you know, Celtic gold, who couldn't, re they couldn't refine gold. There's a lot of copper content. Sometimes it has tarnish, but pure medieval or Roman gold comes out looking just like that. It's amazing. And it's why people have, you know, killed and died over, you know, gold, because it's got that, Got that vibe too. Hey Brian, so yeah. You were talking about the funding of the pieces. Yes. And like the crozers, you said were typically treasuries. Yeah. Sorry. Those crozers, like the Roman knight pieces, would be funded by a treasury mm -hmm. of a specific. Yeah. Where, how were those treasury funded? Were they typically like was there tax on church members or was it? Without going to, uh, yeah, I mean, in, any any number of ways. Of course, the, yeah, the, yeah, a lot of it was land, and of course, the church, especially. I mean, the church, Catholic Church, you know, for a lot of its history, but particularly in the medieval period, was the largest land owner owner uh, in all of Britain, including the king, uh, and so the church had the power of. Uh, Yes, they, they collected uh, taxes from the people who were using the land. Uh, the biggest source uh, of wealth, though, came from the continuous of pe people would donate land, people would wheel land to the church, people would will their estates to the church, and were very meticulous about it because at that time it was a form of uh, indulgence. Uh, in, in other words, uh, the priest would say ahead of time, now, you know, Mr. X, aristocrat, land, you know, landed class, if you donate that meal to the church, you know, then we will have in the chancel, you know, 20 months after you die, 10 uh, monks or 10 uh, nuns saying prayers for your soul every day three hours a day or something like that and the net result of that is that you will get out of purgatory three years earlier the priest would come up you would use an algorithm you know i mean it's insane and so as a way of enticing uh you know people to continue the cycle of wealth for the church um massive massive treasuries massive coffers and of course uh we see a lot of that pushback from uh, Wolsey and Henry VIII uh, during the uh, dissolution of the monasteries. A lot of times people think of the dissolution of the monasteries as we're just going to go down and tear, you know, tear down the images and the idols and the, uh, all of that, but a lot of it was about raiding those treasuries and taking possession of what the church holdings was in that area. So obviously for Henry it wasn't just a big um, conscious of faith <laughs> It was a it was a huge financial boon uh, for uh, for the crown when all that went down. But I hope that answers your question. Yeah, it's a uh, it, it it wasn't tip really out of the generosity of the hearts of the 
uh, parishioners, it was it was more about getting us out of suffering, you know. Theology reflected in the art. Yeah. This first thing is the ceiling. Uh huh. Is there any way to precisely date? How close can you date those? Uh, it's it's really difficult unless they have a date, which is really not typical. Uh, I mean, w- within a, a, a couple of centuries. I mean, they were. There's no progression of the art um, form in terms of seal matrixes. So it could be anywhere from 1100 to 1350, no 14. Didn't change enough to not at all. Not at all. Uh, now, I mean, you, there is, is it's possible to do x-ray fluorescent tests on metal that can determine um, the origin of that metal. Um, and same, same of course, with any organic material, but you can do that on metal as well. It's a very expensive and, and sometimes uh, invasive test. Um, it's usually people don't do it unless it's gold because it's not worth it. But when we find, um, like if you want to buy a gold Aurorus of Claudius, you know, at an auction, it always is accompanying company with an x-ray fluorescent test because it confirms the age of the metal in terms of when it was melted last you know when it was manufactured and a lot of times it will talk it it can determine the origin or where that metal came from so where it where it came from and how old it is you know needs to line up with the the context of the find you know so that's one of the first things they did to the John the Baptist side is do an X, X-ray fluorescence to determine not only that the purity of the gold can determine the culture and the time period a lot of times because uh, it didn't take a rocket scientist you know like that I dug a Celtic gold from 43 A.D. a, a Dublavinius tribe which is a solid hunk of gold with a pony on one side and a, a corn ear on the other uh, and uh, if you look at it, it looks red almost because it has so much copper content. It's it's literally sixty percent gold and forty percent copper, you know. And it's because the Celts didn't know how to refine gold well. If you dig a Roman coin from the same period, gold aurus from the same period, it's as pure gold as you will ever find made in the world. Uh, it, it's stunning, <laughs> stunningly 99.7% ancient, pure, high carat gold. You know, uh, it's because the Romans were perfect at it. Uh, it. It's really, and and you can determine a lot of that. Anyway, so some of what I passed around. These are finds. This is the everyday man's version. This is a uh, uh, IHS, both of these are IHS, which of course is the first three letters, the Latinized version of IHC, uh, the first three letters of the name Jesus in Greek, Latinized as IHS. So uh, it, it was a uh, popular, IHC and IHS were both very popular uh, Christograms found on uh, medieval all the way through. Uh, the Methodist Church still uses them as if you go to First Bap- First Methodist, uh, the thing they bring in has IHS on it. You know, so we've used it for a long time. And these are both. This is just a, a badge pin uh, I found, and then this is uh, was really popular. This is a clothing fastener with IHS, and this is all cast. And see, uh, this would be a vest. 
um, and this would you know have a leather strap on it and this has a hook on the end so you would have a whole row of those uh, where to fasten a vest you would you know you take the hook and through a loop and you do that all the way down so we find these all the time this is uh, more Tudor uh, early 1500s late 1400s here's another here's a a working man's ring with IHS <laughs> again the bishop were wearing that it'd be really big and be made out of gold right uh, here's some things we talked about uh, you mentioned pewter these are and we talked about last week pilgrim badges which are um, you know something you would buy or you would receive by visiting a pilgrim site the most pil uh, popular pilgrim site uh, in Britain was the uh, the site of uh, in Canterbury of, of uh, Thomas Beckett's tomb both of these are there's a St. George which um, was another version of the pilgrim badge that you received if you went and these were made out of uh, pewter which is a lead alloy they don't survive very well either so when we find them they're uh, they're quite valuable mass produced we also talked about ampulla which are little lead containers of holy water from those same pilgrim sites we find these as well uh, some of them more elaborately made uh, than others these are typically what they look like when we find them again this is, uh, you get holy water when you go to a pilgrim site, you bring it back home, tear the top off of it, and you sprinkle it on your crops or your house or your doorstep or your land or something that hurts or, you know, the, a crippled leg or something. It was, it was uh, you go to the pilgrim site, get the holy water, reap the benefit of it. Uh, so anyway, a couple of things I've passed around. One is a clothing fastener, uh, exactly like that, the IHS. Uh, one is a book clasp. Uh, which, of course, you know, big books, uh, books are rare, they're all handmade, you know, and big wooden, uh, they'd have straps and then they'd have buckles. And the, the cool thing about that, that, that buckle still has part of the leather. Again, this is 1200 uh, AD. Uh, it has part of the leather still in it. It has IHS engraved on the front and on the reverse, it has a keyhole because books were so valuable, of course, A, we want specific people accessing what's inside. <laughs> we don't want them to exactly know, you know, this was the church's position for a long time. Uh, and also they're extremely valuable. We don't want people opening book illuminated manuscripts, the Lultral Psalter that we had in a couple of weeks ago. Don't want opening it up and then cutting out a picture of, you know, putting it on your wall, you know, or selling it, you know. So that's the reason for the uh, keyhole. What else did I pass around? There's clothing fastener, steel matrix. Oh yeah, that's the clothing fastener, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, the other thing is a, a, a early Tudor sword uh, hook. In other words, that there, it has a, it's longer, it has a hook on it, it's stippled and has IHS on it. That is a part of a sword carrying implement. In other words, there's a belt, there's a couple of pieces, and then it, it hangs down and has a hook on it, and then the, the sword scabbard would have hooked onto that. So that's for a, uh, a sword implement. Everything, everything functional in medieval life was manufactured with faith in mind. Uh, it makes it great for those of us who look for those material remains, but it is also a testament of A, the theology of the people, uh, their, every part of their life was permeated by um, 
unfortunately, in the medieval period, fear. You know, they didn't understand what the Bible said. They only knew what the priest told them. They didn't understand their God. All they knew is that they better, uh, they better be right uh, by it and listen to whatever the priest said. So <clears throat> the, the importance uh, of faith is shown in every part of the material remains. Wouldn't be true in a thousand years when people dig through our material remains. Probably aren't going to find the same. Well, all those hand-lettered Bible verses everywhere mm-hmm. behind glass. You yes. think they'll last? Oh, <laughs> maybe, maybe. You never know. What the our digital footprint maybe oh, will say something? Uh, yeah, our digital footprint will tell a lot about our faith. Why do they? Why does England let you bring that stuff away? There's so much of it, Miss Sandy. <laughs> that, first of all, they have a great. Uh, they they can't find it all. They can't even find all the hoards and the houses and the stuff that's buried. They just don't have the manpower so they it's a trade-off i go over there and find where a jar of roman gold was buried in the middle of a villa that they didn't know existed they're going to say you can keep this because you've you've told us something about our history that we would have never known so it's a partnership it's a true partnership which doesn't happen by the way anywhere else in the world doesn't happen here the first thing if i dig a giant gold john the baptist which i'm not in franklin tennessee on brad paisley's land you know that's a bad example on uh you know whoever's land in somebody's yard uh the first thing they're going to do is sue me for that hundred and fifty thousand dollars or whatever i mean that we're so litigious and so this doesn't happen in England because the the landowner gets half, the finder gets half. It almost doesn't, in many cases, doesn't matter if I even had permission. The law dictates, this is how it is. Of course, England's much better about following authority. You know, they have it in their spirit to be under the thumb. We have it in our spirit to fight, you know. So, uh, but in, in Ireland, you can't even own a metal detector. Eastern Europe... Uh, although the illicit antiquities trade is a huge part of their commerce in Eastern Europe, uh, it, it, it's it's illegal. You know, anything you find in, in Israel, you find something it immediately belongs to the government. Uh, England has a very friendly, fair system, and because of that, their cultural history. Because of that, you have cooperation among treasure hunters or metal detectorists and because of that the depth of their cultural history has been invigorated uh it's an important partnership that most bureaucracy can't you know see around um that's why they let me they don't care about a little bronze vesica seal in fact when we find something that qualifies for the treasure act which is something 300 years or older and made out of precious metal the museum sees it first says this is what it is and we have the right to buy it. Most of the time, and I've had half a dozen things declared treasure that were acquired by the museum, or acquired by the crown, acquired by the crown. I've had maybe two dozen more that qualified for the Treasure Act that they said, yeah, we got one already, or we don't need it, or it doesn't have, it's incredibly valuable and significant in, in the context of what it is, but in the context of the corpus of their cultural history, it's like 
have that you know thanks a lot That's cheers wonderful. you know yeah it's really it's really it's really great and it it, it works to the benefit of, of both parties because it what it does is it keeps that Englishman from just putting that in his pocket and forgetting about reporting it because he knows when he reports it he will be treated fairly you know and that he could actually uh, add some importance to the to the cultural uh, history of the Anyway, thank y'all for being here. You say that a lot of that stuff has like legally, either legally defined value or they bring in an independent party. Yes, yeah. That's right. Another part of the how fair that process is. Y'all yeah. don't run off of my relics. God will strike you down. <laughs>